you know, as there may be someone listening to your show that has someone that's a heroin addict right now that doesn't believe that it's possible to turn their life around. Welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Hello everybody, welcome to the show. It's my privilege to present to you a conversation with Paul Boggy. Paul is the author of Heroin to Hero, a book about his experiences as a heroin addict and how he was able to get clean and turn his life around. He's on a mission to raise awareness about addiction and provide some hope for people who are struggling with it. What an absolute legend. How can you not love this guy? Give it up for Paul. All right, Paul. How you doing, man? Hello, Thomas. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Great to hear your voice. <laughs> yeah, you too. It's like my best friends. <laughs> All right. We made it through the technical forest, and here we go, man. Dude, thanks so much for, for coming on the, the podcast, man. I appreciate you staying up late. No, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome, Paul. So let's just jump right into it, man. What is your, you know, what's your, your story, man? And, and how did you come to be in this position where you're, you're ringing up uh, podcasters? Yeah, so my story in a nutshell, I suppose, is I grew up in Edinburgh in Scotland. I became addicted to heroin at the age of 18. That lasted for seven years of my life up until I was 25. I done a course about the power of the mind and how the mind works, and I applied that to my addiction. I have just passed 17 years clean of heroin. So after I got clean, I started training. I started running, lifting weights, boxing, and I got extremely fit. Then I got my life back on track. And at the ripe old age of 30, I decided to join the British Army and become a Scots Guardsman, which is, you know, if you see the the guy standing outside Buckingham Palace with the red tunic, the bearskin and the rifle, I was one of those guys. Then I was in a serious accident where I broke my back and crushed my spine. Then I was medically discharged from the Army in 2015. I then had a bout of addiction due to the prescription medications that the doctor were giving me and I became addicted, I became depressed again and at the beginning of lockdown I decided to finish my book Heroin to Hero which I'd been writing for 16 years. I decided to finish the book and publish it on Amazon, donate all the profits to homelessness in Scotland and I think that's as much a nutshell as I can give you Thomas without obviously going in for hours and hours and you know, there's a lot more to my story, I suppose. But in a nutshell, that's me. Amazing, man. Dude, well, congratulations on, on sobriety and coming out of the other side. That's no that's no small feat. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's a lot to that. I suppose I will just frame my understanding of addiction and, and what it is. I think it's, at least in the, over here in the U.S., it's something that's not really understood or discussed. There's a bit of a taboo around it. And most of my exposure to it has been from books, from reading fiction like Train Spotting, Requiem for a Dream, Diary of a Recovering Skinhead. These are all books about people who have had a serious addiction and then 
their paths to either succeeding and coming out of it or, or, or not coming through it. So the yeah. one, the one thing I'll, I'll lead off with is, you know, I've heard some friends as well who are now sober who identify as addicts, right? You know, they're not using presently, but because of their experiences and the things they've been through, they, they identify with the, with the addict mentality and that identity. Is that something that resonates with you? Yeah. Well, I once got asked the question, how do I consider myself? They asked if I was a recovering addict and I said, no, I'm recovered. Um, and I was wrong to make that statement back then, many years ago now. I was wrong to make that statement for the simple reason that if you have been an addict, you are always in recovery for the rest of your life. There, you know, the, the, there is no escape in it. What has happened has happened. You have been an addict and that's always going to be, be part of who you are. It's always going to be part of your life. So I was wrong to make that statement. I am 17 years clean of heroin and I am a recovering heroin addict. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things that society is very much the same over here. It's a bit of a, a sore subject. It's frowned upon mm-hmm. and it's difficult. It's been difficult for me on social media over the last year since I published the book. The title of my book makes people run for the hills. You mentioned their train spotting. My life is a real life train spotting. And that's how when people ask about my story, I say my life, my life's like a real life train spotting with a twist because you McGregor in the film didn't go on to guard the queen. And I did. <laughs> you know, but I did. So my, my, my life is, you know, I'm, I'm actually working on, I'm making a documentary about my life at the moment. The plans is, the plan is, sorry, is to take the book and the documentary as a proof of concept to make a feature film, a real life train spot. And I've contacted Urban Welsh and Ian Rankin, oh, cool. Danny Boyle. I've contacted these guys. I've not heard back. I am supposed to be sitting down with Urban to discuss potentially making a train spot in three or something along those lines because obviously train spotting is a it's a global well-known film. Um, so who knows? I'm currently making this documentary at the moment, Thomas, so I have to be patient. But that's where I'm heading. And obviously in the meantime, I'm just sharing my story all across the world as far and wide as I can, you mm-hmm. know? But that is, it's one of those things that heroin to hero. For a lot of people, you know, they may be intrigued about a book having a title such as Heroin to Hero or, you know, what's about. It's a picture of me in my army uniform on the cover. But it's that word. I've been banned from TikTok. I just reached 10,000 followers on TikTok. And two days later, I got banned. And I got banned for mentioning the title of my book. Mm. So, you know, I'm trying to promote my book to raise money for the homeless people in Scotland. And unbeknownst to me, I'm holding my book up and I'm saying, hello, everyone, how are you? I'm Paul Bogey, the proud author of Heroin to Hero. And I didn't know each time I was saying that, that I was getting a black mark against my name. So I've now been banned from going live. And it's because of that word, heroin. Mm. I'm sorry, man. I hope you can appeal that. That's, I think that's uh identifies kind of the root of the problem, right? Like the reason that kids get drawn into this and are susceptible to it is because there's not a lot of education around drugs and what drugs do to people, right? Yeah, and it's, that, that's the thing. Education is key now. 
it always has been, but for what I'm doing now and what I can see now as being part of the problem is education in schools, getting kids at a younger age, not waiting until they're dabbling with drugs. You want to be trying catching them beforehand and educate them on the dangers of drugs. I've been invited into schools all across Scotland I was in a prison last month speaking to inmates about my book and speaking to inmates about addiction. Unfortunately for for those guys that I went in to speak to, it's a little bit too late for them because they're you know they're in jail. They they're looking to turn their lives around, so that's why I was invited in. I've been invited into four prisons now in Scotland. I'm sure more will come, but that's for me it is getting into schools getting the young kids educated with the dangers of heroin, things to look out for, and try and explain to them the dangers of taking such drugs, any drugs to be fair, alcohol included. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think heroin and homelessness, or rather addiction and homelessness have in common is that there's not a lot of understanding and it's so stigmatized, but the reality is that Anyone can be in the condition of, of where they're close to homelessness, you know, if they're living paycheck to paycheck or a big medical bill or a big accident. And very similar with addiction, right? So I think one of the great things we can do is to humanize it and to make it more understood and make people understand that this can happen to anyone. So if we were to go back to to where you started and how you first got exposed to it, you know, how did you first come into contact with the drugs and, and how did it kind of escalate because you were quite young you said around 16 or 17 right yeah so i was i was 18 when i became addicted i was in a gang and none of us ever took heroin but we we knew about it from school and from our parents heroin kills we we had known people in our area that we stayed who had died from heroin use so at the age of 18 heroin had flooded into our area and it took everyone, caught everyone off guard. Everybody started using it. And unfortunately, I chose to jump in with my friends who were all using it. And, you know, we began using the drug all together. And then over a short period of time, we all became addicted. And then that's really when the troubles start, when you realise that you become addicted. And I remember very early on, Thomas sort of giving up because at school and my parents had told me that heroin kills. If you're a heroin addict, you die. And when I realised that I had become a heroin addict myself, I just thought, well, that's me now. I've signed my own death warrant, effectively. I don't know when and I don't know how, but I am a heroin addict now and I'm going to die. And that just really was my, my, my focus. But I suppose the way that I escaped those thoughts was to take more heroin. Because when I take heroin, I don't care. I don't care about dying. I don't care about my family so much. I don't care about my life. I don't care about the way I look, what people think of me. I don't really care about anything. I just care that I've got that drug and it puts a big cloud over my mind, um, numbs me effectively. And heroin became my best friend. It became my go-to thing to, to escape my mental health problems that I was experiencing. You know, and it's just, and then it just went, things just went on a downward spiral from there. I think for me, when I when I sit back and I look now, 
you know, homeless people and addicts. The reason that, you know, there's a lot of homeless people on the streets in Scotland and probably in the States as well. I don't know the figures, but there's a lot of pe- these homeless people that have become ad- addicted to alcohol and heroin and crack and other substances. And it happens one of two ways is for, for what I could see it is that someone gets in trouble with drugs, living in the family home or living with their wife or husband. Drugs get the better of them. Everything breaks up and they end up on the streets as a result. Or you have the people who are um, broken families and stuff that end up on the streets and as a way of coping, they turn to alcohol and drugs and then become addicted. And I think that that's why there are so many people on the streets right now sleeping rough with addiction problems is for one of those two reasons. Of course, there may be other reasons, but from what I've experienced mm-hmm. speaking to people, that predominantly is the reason that most people that I've spoke to are on the streets is there's been a breakdown in the family home because they've been addicted to drugs, they've been kicked out and they're on the street. They continue to use drugs as a coping mechanism and then there's people that have never touched drugs in their life who for whatever reason end up homeless and then turn to drugs or alcohol as a coping mechanism because it does work short term. Obviously downside, as we know, you become addicted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, then, then it gets really bad, you know. Absolutely. So, with the gang in your youth, was it? Did it start off as just a group of friends, and then you would shake people down to get money, and it escalated? Or, or when you started, was it a, ded- a dedicated? You know, we are a gang. This is our name. This is what we're about. You know, how did how did that start? Yeah. So the gang that I was in was just a group of friends from my neighbourhood that I went to school with. Everybody knew everyone, but then when you start committing crime, you know, and there's 20, 30, 40 young young boys, various different ages, you you become a gang. Um, Drugs were never really our thing. Drugs were always on the scene from as far back as I can remember from five, six years old. I can always remember drugs been in the area and in the neighbourhood. We never really touched them so much. Cannabis and alcohol were the sort of two main drugs that people in my gang associated with. Never anything stronger or heavier than that. You know, but it was one of those things where everybody wanted to be in the gang. If you weren't in the gang, you were going to get bullied. So mm-hmm. you wanted to be in the gang. You wanted to be part of the group, part of being a part of that group is that you do what they do because if you don't you may get out of it because you're not doing what they're doing everybody else was doing heroin and i wanted to be part of the gang still so mm. i started taking heroin thinking i can stop whenever i want you know i didn't know i didn't honestly believe when i was first using it that i would ever have became addicted to it however how naive i was but i just thought that i just wanted to be part of the gang and that's and that's quite important you know that kids out there that are in gangs realise that it's just not worth it to jump in just to be with your friends to end up with an addiction, whatever it may be, you know, alcohol, crack or heroin or or anything. When when the addiction, that's when the life changes. You know, your whole life's going to change and it's important to let people know 
you know, in hindsight, I could go back. I would rather have been on my own. Right. I would have rather well, just sat in and played my Xbox and my PlayStation in my house with my mum and dad every night and just stayed in and stayed away from them and not became a heroin addict. But like I say, in hindsight, you know, so. Right. And I mean, for a kid, that's that's almost impossible to do, especially if you're social, right? And you feel that urge to connect with people. Yeah. So, but when you were a young kid, like what kind of kid were you? You know, were you social and loved to run around and play football with your buddies or were you more quiet and reserved? Paint the picture for us. Who was the kid that walked in, you know, and started seeing the drugs at a young age? Like what was your personality like? So when I was very young, I'm the second eldest, the four boys. So my mom, my mom and dad had four boys and everything was super competitive, competitive from very early on. My, my early memories are playing football, playing golf, and playing snooker. Um, my dad was very good and accomplished all those sports. So there was always a, a competitive streak. There was three years between us. I was was never the best. I was never the best at anything. My brothers were always better than me. That was hard. That was it was difficult for me not to ever be the best. I was always getting overlooked when opp- opportunities came up for sporting events and sporting clubs that my brothers got picked and I never got picked. So I felt that pretty hard early on. I was a joker, Thomas, at school. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm a very much a people person and I like to have a joke and a laugh. And unfortunately, that carried on to secondary school and that's probably why I got the grades that I did. I could have achieved so much more if I wasn't a joker. But I wanted to, I always enjoy people laughing and smiling even if it was at my expense. So I was like that as a young boy growing up, the whole way through, even into adulthood. I was always a joker and a laugher. But I think I was very much um, in my own head. When I think back to my childhood now, and I understand the things that I do now about the mind, and I think back to my childhood, I was very much in my own head, having conversations and self-talking with myself, Every minute, every day, thinking, why am I not getting picked? Why do my, why does that friend not like me? Why am I fighting with that friend? Why does that girl not like me? Why is she calling me ugly? Why, you know, and I was very much in my own head a lot of the time, worrying about things that I had no control over. And that probably affected my childhood. I don't know exactly, Thomas, to be honest. There will be some psychologist out there in the world they will probably have all the answers for me and they will be able, <laughs> will be able to say, Paul, you know, when, when I listened to the podcast that you done with Thomas and you were talking about that feeling there, that's the reason, you know, and I'm sure it will make some sense to someone along the lines, but I just feel like I was just a joker, but very mindful. Well, you, and you, wanted, you wanted belonging, right? You wanted to feel important and feel loved and feel valued is what I'm hearing. Yeah, and it's it was difficult for my mum and dad. They were strict. You know, they were very strict. We would get we would get our backside scalped mm-hmm. um, all the time. There was four. My mum had four boys running around. Oh, God bless her! You know, and and causing, <laughs> causing mayhem, kicking <laughs> kicking footballs through windows. You know, every every brand new pair of trainers that we ever had lasted about two days, but before they got ruined, <laughs> it was hard. And it was just like, I just had to, I was just craving 
I was just craving this attention that I never got. And right. I know now it was because, like I just said, my mum had her hands full with the four of us that she couldn't single me out and get, and show me more love than the rest of them. And it was we were very much probably on an even keel. But for me personally, as a kid, I felt that my brothers got more attention than I ever did. The most attention that I got was when I misbehaved. And I, right. remember, and I remember misbehaving on purpose so that my mum and dad would shout at me. Right, to get some recognition. Mm. Just for them to shout at me. Right. Um, you know, and I would just do things bad. I would also I'd answer back to my mum. My mum hated me answering back. She would say, go and clean your room. And I would mumble under my breath on purpose. I didn't want to clean my room. And she would hear me. And she'd say, what did you say? And I'd say, nothing. She went, I heard you. And, you know, it would be a big argument. And it was like, I used to do it all the time. And it was just to wind my mum up so that I got attention. It wasn't the sort of attention that, that uh, certainly when I got a sore backside, you know, I, I soon regretted it when my mum scalped me. But that was what it was. It was just that craving for, for love and attention. But yeah. And there's people, I mean, everyone can relate to that, you know, and I think that story is so, we've seen it over and over again, right? And I asked that question just to get a little background and understanding because, like I said, this can happen to literally anyone, you know what I mean? And if the kids out there aren't getting the attention they, they need at home because of their parents are stressed because life is hard and there are so many difficult juggling things parents have to do, like, this is how it happens, you know? Like, okay, let's fast forward to what your adulthood I would imagine in these moments, right, society has these divisions, right? And people different from us are misunderstood and race, gender, sexuality, all these things. But I would imagine in that moment when you're in a in a drug house or with other people who are trying to get their next fix, no one cares, right? Like it's only about the drugs. It would, would be my guess. Is that is that accurate? Did you ever find yourself interacting with people that you were like, I would have never met you in my life. Yeah, very accurate. I remember on many occasions sitting in drug houses and stuff, and I had withdrew from society because I was spat on, because I was uh, using heroin. Mm -hmm. You were an an outcast. I was outcasted, and I was outcasted in the community, and so was everyone else that was using heroin. So that drew us in closer. You know, and what ended up happening was other heroin addicts that we didn't know became part of the gang. And we became a gang of heroin users. If you weren't using heroin, you weren't in the gang. And it was because we all had the same goal. When we opened our eyes every morning or afternoon, we all felt the same about we need that drug to function and we need that drug to feel better. And that comes over and above anything else that life has got going on at the moment. You know, and that's sad. You disregard everything else. You know, your family, friends, work colleagues, just everything that goes on the back burner until you've got your drugs. And that's a similarity. It's something that you have in common with these drug users. You've all got the same thing in common. The drug that you're taking is your friend, effectively. So we would always we would always just source source together, but you know drug addiction in the, in the nature of it certainly a legal drug addiction 
there's a lot of lying, there's a lot of cheating, there's a lot of stealing, there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of nasty stuff going on um, between everyone. And that was pretty hard when I think back. You know, it was pretty hard. It was a pretty hard thing to deal with people that you believed that you knew done things that were just horrible and nasty to other people just to get the drugs. Thankfully, I never, you know, but I remember some old friends, obviously I won't say their names, but I remember some old, old friends like co- committing some pretty horrific crimes and stuff. And I think, wow, you know, I never ever would have thought that you would have stooped so low to do something like that, even if it was to get drugs. And it's just, it's just sad, you know. I, didn't, I don't think these people were, were bad or evil. Um, I just think that the drug, such a mind-altering drug, just took over. The addiction just took over all aspects of their life. And you don't care being a drug addict. You don't care mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Anybody, anything or anyone. You care about getting your drugs. Including uh, yourself. Yeah. I lost so much weight. When I used to go to the doctors to speak about my heroin addiction, I got put on a methadone program. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, Listen, Paul, I need you to do a I need you to do a food diary for a week or two weeks. He says, I'm concerned about your weight. And I said, Can I just get a prescription? I want diazepam and I want methadone. Or I'm gonna go and get heroin as soon as I leave. So he said, I'll give you a prescription, but I want you to go on the scales. Every time I was at the doctors every three or four days asking for tablets and codeine and all the, just give me anything you can to help me. And every time I went in, he just put me on the scales and he says, malnutrition is going to kill you before heroin does. I'll never forget that. Look me, mm. square, look me square in the eye. And he says, I've just looked at your food diary and you're eating literally nothing over the last two weeks. You know, my ribs were showing, my... I had black circles under my eyes. My face was white, so skinny. I didn't care, Thomas. I didn't care that I wasn't eating. I just wanted the drugs. I just wanted the doctor to write me a prescription so that I could go to the chemist and I could take a copious amount of drugs and get wasted and forget about the damage that I was doing to my body, the Mm -hmm. the shame that I've caused on my family, the shame... You kind of retract those things. All I, all I could do was try and make them proud, and I've done that now. But back then, it just, it's just a horrible thing to not care. I was, I was suicidal. So it was that whole thought process of thinking about death all the time. When's my time? Is malnutrition going to kill me? Is heroin going to kill me? Or it was, it got to the stage where I. I'm tired of this life now. I'm just tired of everything. And I just want to take my own life. And I didn't want to be here. And that was unfortunately how extreme things have got for me. Fortunately, I am still here talking to you right now in in America. You know, yep. so, you know, a, a proud author. Having well, I'm proud of you too, man. Dude, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so happy you made it. Thank you, mate. You know, but that, uh, back then it was just like that. And it's just, yeah, I just really feel for people that are struggling right now with addiction and can't see a light at the end mm-hmm. of the tunnel and are contemplating suicide like what I was. And this is why I'm here. This is why I'm not just sharing my story in Scotland. I'm not just sharing it in the UK. 
you know, I've done a po- I've done a podcast in India. And, awesome. You know, I've got one set up for Australia. You know, I've done six, I think now across America because you guys over there, I've got just as many addiction problems as we do here in the UK. You know, as there may be someone listening to your show that has someone that's a heroin addict right now that doesn't believe that it's possible to turn their life around. And I'll say, here, um, listen to Thomas's podcast with Paul. Paul's Scotland. Paul's in Scotland, so you'll have to bear with his accent. <laughs> but listen, <laughs> listen to what he's saying about this ability to change. And it's true. Everybody has the ability to change. Unfortunately, a lot of people just don't believe in themselves that they've got that power to do it. Everyone has it. It's in our mind. You know, so I, I help I help addicts on a daily basis now on on social media and stuff. I help people break addictions. And that's it's an amazing feeling to give something back to try and help people's suffering, I suppose. Absolutely. That, that is very amazing. <laughs> You're driving a hard bargain with that doctor, man. <laughs> Give me what I want and I'm going to go get more skag right now. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the thing was, right, but he done it. He done it. Yeah. And, well, he saved your life, right? I mean, fuck. Yeah. But see, the thing, the thing is with the, with the doctors, right? I didn't want to get myself into trouble here, right? Um, uh-huh. Certainly back in the day, the doctors were a little bit sick of me. And they were a little bit sick of all, all my friends who were addicts. We were constantly at the doctors. Right. And, oh, you know when you gave me that prescription? Well, I went and lost it. Or my friend stole them. Or I need more because the amount that you've given me isn't working. So, right. so they, were, were, they were over it. They were they were our drug dealers. Right. That's, I mean, effectively, that's what the doctors want. That's what the doctors are right now. You know, the, the dr- drugs are drugs. You know, they're not they're not prescribing heroin yet because that might that might change in the next few years. Well, but, opiates are just about there, right? Yeah, they're looking at looking about um, legalizing a lot of drugs, and they're looking about potentially putting heroin on on prescription to make sure that the heroin that people are taking on the streets. I, I smoked um, brick dust before. Like actual, like, bricks. building building bricks? Building bricks. Somebody, had, somebody grinded it up into a powder, put it in a bag. I bought it, and I sat and, mm. smoked, I sat and smoked that. That was horrific. I, I bet. Mean, I, I remember putting it, on the tin, <laughs> putting it on the tinfoil. I remember looking at my friend. I think, that looks a bit orange. You know, it wasn't brown or white. It was orange. Both of, us were, <laughs> both, both of us were cold turkey at the time. Oh, we had the God. sweats, the cramps, and oh, no. we paid the money. We got the heroin. We asked what a help. piece of garbage who sold that to you? Yeah, and the thing was, we sat and smoked it in the house where we bought it because we were so unwell. And I remember taking the lighter to the tin foil, and this stuff blew up. It started crackling and it spat like black, black lava all over the foil and it let off this big um horrible black smoke i smoked it i inhaled it right into my lungs um and so did my friend and you know what the crazy thing is thomas right is that i still believed at that point while i was cold turkey 
that they may have put a little bit of heroin in there. And right. if, there a, if there was a little bit of heroin in that brick dust, then that little bit of heroin would take away my pain. It was maybe five minutes, ten minutes later that we realised, still cold turkey in, that there was absolutely no heroin. There was no heroin in that bag. You know, so you have problems like that. People, people mix in all sorts of things, unknown things with heroin. You go out and take it, you can potentially um, overdose or, or whatever. So that's one of the things that I think the government are looking at here is, you know, the legalisation of certain drugs and having it in a controlled environment and sort of things. And whether it happens or not, I don't know. I'm for it personally, but mm-hmm. there will be so many people, of course, that are against it and they'll have their arguments for that and they're entitled to Right. What was the moment when you turned it around? Was it that malnutrition comment from the doctor or what was it that made you say, okay, I need to, I need to get off this? Yeah. So there was, there was many things through my life that you would perhaps would think that that would have been the pivotal point that I'm going to turn it around. So the dying through malnutrition, having a, having a daughter, you know, and there's, there's loads of, there's loads of parts in my life. I relapsed 13 times. Then I went and attended a course um, about the mind. Mm. Nothing to do with addiction whatsoever. It was to do about the mind and about the power, you know, um, positive thinking, positive self-talk, um, believing in yourself, believing that things are a choice and all this glass is half full stuff. Mm-hmm. And I used to think that's absolutely rubbish. This guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. I'm a heroin addict because that's my destiny and that's my choice and my bed and I lie in it and I was always against it I finished that course I went back on drugs and then 17 years ago on the 14th of May I woke up something was different I felt something was different all my drugs were in the house I used to be in a routine of taking them every morning and this morning I remember feeling different I went up I put my nose on the big mirror above the fireplace. I looked straight in my eyes. Um, am I allowed to swear? Am I allowed to curse? Fuck yeah. Oh, right, cool. Right. <laughs> it's, it's never the same when... when yeah, you know, I know, I know. Like, try to explain what happened but uh-huh. without cursing. So I put my nose on the mirror and I looked straight in my eyes. I said, don't fucking ask for heroin ever again because you're never getting it. From that moment, my life changed. I had a future. I, I began to dream, and I was no longer thinking about dying. I was thinking about what I was going to do with the rest of my life, and that was amazing. Absolutely. I mean, and kudos to you for making it happen. And I just want to say, man, you know, I think you can look back and, and tell that kid, you know, that you you have gone on and impacted people's lives in a positive way, and, and and done amazing things like you getting on here and telling your story and you know, this will reach people, man, and this will help people. So I just want to say thank you and, and congratulations, man, on making it. And I'm so happy that, that you did. No, thank you. And, and, and thank you for allowing me to be, to be on your show and helping me to share, because I believe that these podcasts are really giving me the opportunity to share my story. And both of us together, Thomas, we are playing a small part. You're giving me the platform to come on and share my story 
So, you know, so you're doing an amazing thing by doing that. And then hopefully there are people that hear your, hear your podcast that can help or they can be inspired, hopefully, you know, to, to go on and change their lives. And, 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 you know, that's my dream that that'll always be a dream. Um, my dreams come true all the time. People do turn their lives around and stuff. And I want to just dedicate the rest of my life to sharing this knowledge of addiction um, that I have. It's important. Absolutely. And let's do this, man. We have one more coming up on time here, but we have have a game we play in every episode called the Three Things Game. It's a knowledge and wisdom game I think you're going to really like. But (laughs) let's do this, man. I downloaded your book. I'll read your book, and we can come back and do another one and dive deeper on on the story and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that. Okay, awesome. All right, so the three things game, essentially it's a thing, it's a game, it's a card game. What are three things you have learned about X, Y, or Z? Everything is different, every card. So the person whose birthday is closer goes next. So what's your, what month is your birthday in, Paul? So I'm June. June, okay. So you're up, man. So here's your question. What are, <laughs> what are three lessons you have learned from being on a team? Three lessons I've learned from being on a team as your only as strong as your weakest member. Leadership is not so much for me and being on a team. It's better to be friends. <laughs> better to be friends than teammates? <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I always, yeah, I always like, I always got better. The team, certainly in football and in the army and stuff, things always seem to happen a lot better when it was with my friends. I think it's maybe, a, maybe an element of trust in there. Totally. That, that that makes sense. I like that. And you are a leader. Come off it. What are you talking about? You're doing a world tour, changing people's yeah. lives. <laughs> you know, it's like, I do. Like, I do. I, I, I suppose I do have to be a leader in some aspects and stuff. But I think certainly football, when I played football and in the army and stuff, I was always, I was always quite good at taking orders, Thomas, you know, um, even for the younger guys. I'd, oh, I I never used to mind taking orders. I just liked being part of a team. Same with being in a gang. Similar. I just liked being part of the team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay. Here's my question. What are the three best ways to resolve a conflict? All right. One, I would say, is just to let the person who's fired up know that I understand and I see them. Even if I don't agree with them or it's not going well. I think it's important to say, Hey, like I get it. And that can just help people kind of de de escalate. Yeah. Number two, if it's a small enough conflict and someone's clearly right and clearly wrong, I feel like a quick, like you can squash it almost like if it's kind of menial and it's someone who I really know and trust and we have that good rapport and they're just being ridiculous or I'm being ridiculous then I feel like if there is that level of trust, then one person can just be like, cut it out. You know what I mean? Or like you are being absurd. And and then I think that works sometimes, you know, like if it's someone you have a good relationship with, yeah, you can just, you can just call them out essentially. And, and it does work sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third way is probably just to accept <laughs> that there is no way to resolve a lot of conflicts and just make peace with it and just let it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, just, it is what it is. And it's not, it's not easy. It's not up to us to, to, to stop other people's conflicts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very true. 
you know, I, I was gonna, I wanted to say what I was going to say, right? But it's your yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, right. Because this is the first thing that came to my mind when you said that question, right? So there's a lot, there's a lot of knife crime in the UK, and for me to resolve conflict, you know, I'm a bit old school, and I believe in the old, you know, having a having a punch up. Um, yeah as the best way to resolve conflict rather than pulling out guns and pulling out knives to resolve the conflict. So I was going to say, having a good old punch-up, the old-fashioned way. Yeah. You know, you maybe get a bit of bloody <laughs> nose or a black eye, but then at the end you shake hands and you say, right, okay, and then forget about it. You know, and that, mm-hmm. I've seen that happen a lot in my life, and it always worked. You know, we always end up being friends again. So, yeah, sorry, I hijacked your question. No, it's good. I think it's true, man. Just let it out and nobody dies and it's all good. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, as long as nobody dies, then that's it. It's all good. Awesome. Dude, Paul, thank you so much. Where can the good people find your find your work and your book? So my book's on Amazon. It's available on paperback and ebook. And I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook. My profile is public so any of your listeners that want to send me a friend's request they can and i'll accept i'm on instagram paul bogey 1979 and um, i'm on twitter same tiktok and youtube if you put in my name or even in google you google my name anybody can find me now because i've checked <laughs> it's one of these things that um, i checked very early on you put in google and there's paul bogey's film all across the world and now when i put in paul bogey in google I'm on the first page. I've been in the news and stuff, so I'm quite easy to find. I'd love any of your listeners from across the pond to come on and join me on this journey that I'm on, on social media at the moment. And of course, buying the book would just be a bonus. Absolutely, man. Well, I did just that, and I'm going to I'm gonna read it, and we'll do it again, man. We can do a, a deeper dive in the story. I'm sure there'll be a lot of things I can ask you about once I read the book. Yeah, perfect. And now, now I know that I can swear and I can curse, on your show you know <laughs> the next on, on part two you know i might just let it flow a little bit more loose knowing that I'm, <laughs> you're not you're not going to have to edit it at the end because it's the f word you know <laughs> oh good man that's that's small potatoes right yeah exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right polly hey thank you so much man really appreciate you and uh yeah, man, just, dude, thank you for getting your story out and, and congratulations on making it to the other side, man. Brilliant. Thank you, Thomas. I appreciate it. All right, man. We'll see you next time. Have a good evening. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Boom What a story. What a guy. Thank you so much to Paul for coming on the show and telling his story and stepping up to normalize conversations around addiction, homelessness, and even just things that kids deal with. I think there was a lot of really great stuff in that conversation. Go out, grab your copy of Heroin to Hero, give it a read, and we'll come back and do part two with Paul. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week on the Bro Nouveau Podcast.